This is Maine Currents, independent local news, views, and culture. I'm Amy Brown. Today we're going to hear from Hannah Cyrus, Assistant Director at the Blue Hill Public Library, with a presentation on digital media literacy recorded on May 20th. There are some references to slides, but they're explained well enough so that you'll be able to understand without seeing them. However, if you do wish to follow along with the visuals, we've posted the video of the talk on the WERU Facebook page. This is Hannah Cyrus. Hi everyone, this is Hannah at the Blue Hill Library. I'm gonna go through my presentation about digital media literacy, to talk a little bit about how to evaluate information, both in general and in the digital landscape. This presentation is going to cover evaluating information, uh, searching and websites, email, as well as social media. So to discuss evaluating information in general, this is going to apply to any kind of information, whether you're looking at it in a book, reading a print newspaper, or looking at something on the internet. These are some general tools that you can use to think about uh, what information you're consuming. And it's something that uh, I like. It's a very easy acronym to remember called the CRAP test. So that's just showing uh, five different factors that you wanna consider when looking at a piece of information. Uh, that stands for currency, relevance, authority, accuracy, and purpose. So these are all different factors that you should think about when looking at information. Currency is fairly straightforward. Uh, you wanna be able to identify when this piece of information was created or disseminated. That can cut both ways a little bit. I think it's very easy to understand the idea of currency when you're thinking about information that might be old or out of date. But especially in the digital age, you also wanna be aware of information that might be too new to really have been vetted and properly evaluated before it was published. So this is uh, usually pretty easy to find if you're looking at a print source, a book will have a copyright date, a newspaper will have the date of the paper at the top of each page. On the internet, it can be a little bit harder to find, but um, generally there should be some kind of timestamp uh, or date associated with any piece of information. And if you're having trouble finding out when something was published, that might be a red flag for you to question it a little bit more than you otherwise would have. And again, thinking about currency, both in terms of information being too old to be useful, if something was published years and years ago uh, and the understanding of it has changed, that's gonna depend a little bit on what type of information you're looking at. Some information changes more quickly than others but also uh, whether something might be too new to really be trustworthy. Uh, one example of this that I like to think about is several years ago when the Supreme Court was first ruling on the Affordable Care Act, you know, many reputable news sources were reporting that they struck down the individual mandate in their decision when in fact that wasn't really true but there was such a hurry to get things published as quickly as possible in the news that no one had time to actually read the full decision before they were already reporting on it. And so they misinterpreted it and ended up reporting incorrect information. 
this is again especially a problem in the internet age when there's a lot of pressure on media companies to be the first to break a story and to get the information out immediately as quickly as possible to consumers so keep it in mind when you're looking at information online you should be able to see when it was published and uh, evaluate how that relates to that particular piece of information might it be old and out of date or might it be new and difficult to uh, confirm. Relevance is more about uh, your relationship to the piece of information that you found and whether that information is actually filling the need or answering the question that you had. So if you're thinking about the Supreme Court as a continued example, uh, if you have some kind of legal training, you might be very well equipped to read a full Supreme Court decision and understand everything they're talking about completely. But for an average person who doesn't uh, know all of the legal jargon, reading a court decision or the full text of a law might be a little bit less relevant to them. It's not bad information, but it's not information that's going to actually help you answer the question you have. Um, for that, you might need something more like a news article that's going to analyze the decision and break it down for you. There might also be things that are too simple that, you know, an encyclopedia article might have good information in it, but it's not in depth enough to answer the question that you have. So think about what piece of information you've found and whether it's actually relevant to the question that you have. Authority for me is the most interesting piece. Uh, I think the ways in which we construct authority in our culture are fascinating. Um, we often talk in libraries about wanting to find and use authoritative sources, but there is no one authoritative source on every subject. You may have sources that you use regularly that you trust, uh, and those often will translate straight from print into digital. Uh, you know, if you read the New York Times in print, they've also got those same articles on the website uh, with the same authority. But there's lots of different sources and organizations out there that may be authoritative on different subjects. Um, just because something's not traditionally what you might think of as authoritative doesn't mean that it can't be an authority in its own niche. If someone is sharing their personal experience about something through a blog, for instance, they may not be authoritative about um, a specific you know scientific subject but they can share their personal experience with great authority so you should think about you know what does authority mean to you in any given situation um, what would be an authoritative source and uh, know that there's not one blanket authoritative source for every subject Accuracy is another factor that you want to evaluate when looking at a piece of information. And, you know, that one's pretty straightforward. Is it right or wrong? Uh, if you find inaccuracies in a news story or uh, any other piece of information, that should be a red flag that the whole thing may be suspect. Perhaps it didn't go through any kind of vetting process wherein someone would be seeking out to correct those inaccuracies. This could be as simple as something that's riddled with spelling and grammatical errors, uh, indicating that it was never proofread by anyone, 
or, you know, as complex as a, a very specific inaccuracy that you only notice because you happen to be an expert in that subject. Um, but either way, if you see something that you know is wrong, that should indicate to you that you should be a little more skeptical of a piece of information uh, or a source of information because perhaps it got, hasn't gone through uh, a vetting process. Again, related to authority, no individual source is accurate 100% of the time. Someone may be authoritative on a subject, but still make a mistake. And a reliable source is going to admit mistakes and print corrections when um, it is inaccurate about things. And lastly, purpose, which is also really related to authority, is you know why was this thing created? Uh, a lot of things have more than one purpose, right? A news source might have a mission to be disseminating information to the public at the same time as they have a commercial interest in selling papers or getting clicks. So you want to consider why a particular thing was created, both in the broader sense of you know, the organization that's putting it out and in the specific sense of that particular piece. Um, if it's an article, is it a straight up news article just giving some basic facts or is it more of an opinion piece is it something that's trying to convince you of something if it is trying to convince you of something why again tying it to who the author is and what authority they have you know what do they have to gain by you um, believing their opinion so that's a nutshell version of the crap test and you should be looking for these markers on any piece of information that you find. Again, whether that's on print or online, um, currency, when was it created? You should be able to find a date. Relevance, does this actually answer the question I'm asking? Authority, you should be able to find who wrote it, who is the author, and think about why they might have expertise or not in a given subject. Accuracy, does it seem like it's correct? Is it full of errors? and purpose, why was it made? Another thing to keep in mind across uh, information searching in any medium is cognitive bias. Cognitive biases are particular psychological quirks that have been identified and studied in human beings. These are just things that our brains do when confronted with information. There's not really a great way around them, um, because they're sort of inherent in the way that our minds work, but uh, it can help to be aware of them and keep them in mind as you're pursuing pieces of information. There's lots of cognitive biases out there. I really recommend you know, reading about lots of them because they're fascinating. But these are a few that are particularly relevant to when you're searching for information. The first is confirmation bias. This is when you selectively seek out information to confirm what you already believe is true. So you have a belief and when you go looking for information on the subject, you may be phrasing your search in such a way or choosing results or sources in such a way that you're seeking out the information that's just gonna confirm that belief that you already hold. Bias blind spot is another cognitive bias, and it's when you think that you're less biased than others. So if you read that past bullet point and thought, oh yeah, I know people do that, but I'm pretty good at avoiding that, 
then you have this one. <laughs> when you just think that inherently because you're you, uh, you're less biased than other people, which is not really true, um, but it is something that people tend to believe about themselves. And then the backfire effect, just similar to confirmation bias. It's uh, when you're presented with evidence that goes against a belief that you hold, you reject that and then double down on your belief. So even if you're given very logical evidence contradicting something that you feel strongly about, you're actually likely to just really believe even more strongly in the original thing. So those are things to keep in mind as you look for information. Um, it doesn't necessarily mean that you're right or that you're wrong. These are just tricks that our brains play on us that we want to do our best to identify when they're happening and avoid. So those were some general principles and to apply them more specifically to the digital landscape, I'm going to talk a little bit about uh, information as related to searching and websites. So we'll cover a bit about search engines and how they work, some information you can get about websites from their URLs, talk about HTTPS, and discuss about sections on websites. So search engines are online tools that were created to index pages on the internet and allow you to search through that index using keywords or typing in questions. They're trying to pair your question with relevant pages online. Google is probably the most common search engine that people use. Um, it, Google is a massive company now and they create all kinds of products, but searching was really their bread and butter. That's how they got started. And they still have a really powerful search engine. So uh, you can go to google.com or oftentimes if you just type keywords or questions into your address bar or a search bar in your web browser, it will default to using Google. And uh, it allows you to search the web for all kinds of things. One downside to Google, even though it is a very effective search engine, is that you may have some concerns around your privacy as it relates to Google. As a massive corporation, it does track your searches and it sort of compiles that data um, to better advertise to you, which is how they pay their bills and how they're able to offer that service. But if that's a concern for you, if you want to have your search be a little more private, uh, a good alternative to Google is DuckDuckGo. Uh, it's a really similar experience. It looks a lot alike and it's uh, also a pretty good search engine and it does not track your data as you search. It does still have advertising, but um, it's not targeting ads to you based on your search patterns. And I find DuckDuckGo to be pretty good. I will say it's not quite as robust as Google. Um, if you're trying to do a really complex search, I tend to fall back on Google as still the best option. But if you're just you know, looking for a website that you don't know the address for, or looking for something that um, should be pretty straightforward to find, DuckDuckGo is a great place to do a search and it will return really similar results to Google most of the time. Here's just a side-by-side -side comparison of those two services. So on the left is a screenshot of a search from Google. And on the right is the same search from DuckDuckGo. 
So you can see these look really similar in aesthetic, uh, in results. Um, they're quite a comparable experience. One thing I did want to point out about both of these services is the advertisements. So generally, the idea of a search engine is that it's going to show you results in an order based on relevance. So it's trying to use its fancy algorithms that it has secretly in the back end um, to deliver the best results to you at the top of the list. And that's going to be things that most closely match the search terms that you put in and also that are most commonly clicked on when people do similar searches. Um, that's sort of one metric that search engines use to determine what is the most useful is, okay, which sites do people actually click on when they do the search? And those tend to rise to the top. There's other factors as well, which you know, Google, for instance, does not uh, particularly like to disclose because they don't want people to be able to game the system and get their site artificially top to the top of the list. But that's the general idea is that they're going to use whatever information they have to try to get you the best match to what you search for. Now, part of the reason they don't want people to be able to artificially go to the top of the list is because uh, they want to charge you for that. <laughs> so you can see in the screenshot on the left, just above all of the big blue headlines, uh, there is a little bold word that says add. Um, so in this particular search, since I'm searching for something that is easily available to buy on the internet, there's a lot of ads. And in fact, you can't even see any of the regular results in this picture. It's all ads at the top of the page. So these are just companies who have paid Google to uh, display this advertisement, which looks a lot like a search result, except for having that little label that says ad. And they've paid to display them at the top of the page when someone searches for cat food. It's not necessarily bad. It may be that indeed you find the perfect cat food at Chewy.com or Petco or any one of these ads, but you do just want to keep in mind um, whether you're clicking on an advertisement or a sort of natural search result based on Google's algorithms. And the same thing is true with DuckDuckGo over on the right. You can see um, there's some shopping results at the top with those pictures. Those are also advertisements from Amazon. And that first um, headline underneath the pictures has a little label that says add at the end of it on the right. So both places, advertisers will buy ads uh, to display along with the search results. In both cases, they look pretty similar to the search results themselves. So if you do want to differentiate, you have to pay a little bit of attention. I think DuckDuckGo does a slightly better job of differentiating those ads, but you know, they have an interest in uh, making them look as much like search results as possible so that people are more likely to click on them. And then, you know, advertisers find that that investment has paid off and they want to buy more ads. And again, that's just sort of how the economy of the internet works. So that's just something to keep in mind when you're searching is um, whether or not something is a paid advertisement. And again, doesn't mean it's a bad thing to click on necessarily, but you want to know the difference and be able to spot them. One great place to get information about websites is in the URL. So this is the web address that will appear in that address bar at the top of your web browser. 
And one part of a URL that's a great source of information is called the extension. This is what comes after the dot at the end of a website. So in this case, I've got a couple examples up, census.gov, bowden.edu. These are um, web addresses that end in those particular extensions, .gov and .edu. And the nice thing to know about these two extensions is that they are regulated. So you can trust that a site ending in .gov is a site that belongs to the US government. They don't allow anyone else to register a .gov website. And similarly with .edu, those are only given to actual educational institutions. So, you know, I say trust them. You don't necessarily trust everything that those organizations are going to say. Certainly educational institutions and the government make mistakes or say things that are incorrect sometimes. But what I mean by trust here is that you can trust that they are who they say they are. So if you get sent a link to fill out the census and it goes to something that doesn't end in .gov, uh, then you should not fill that out because it's not a government website. There are other extensions like .org that can be kind of an indicator of what type of website it is. A lot of nonprofits and other organizations like to use .org instead of .com because it kind of indicates that it's not a commercial enterprise but those aren't regulated in the way that .gov and .edu are. So you can take that as a piece of information, but certainly take it with a grain of salt and don't use it as a way to ensure that something is from a particular source because anyone can buy a .org website. You're listening to Maine Currents on WERU-FM. This is Hannah Cyrus, Assistant Director of the Blue Hill Public Library with a presentation on digital media literacy recorded at the library on May 20th. There are some references to slides. They are explained well enough without seeing them, but if you'd like to follow along with the visuals, you can find the link to the video of the presentation on the WERU Facebook page. Back to Hannah Cyrus. Another uh, facet of websites that I wanted to cover is HTTPS. So this is a particular type of, it's called protocol, that uh, many websites will use to keep your data safe when you're interacting with the website. The S stands for secure, and it means that your data is encrypted. You don't have to know 100% what encryption means or does, but basically it's that if you're filling out a form on a website, like for example, entering your credit card information to make an online purchase or um, filling out some kind of form with your name and email and address, then having that website be secure and the data be encrypted means that in between you hitting enter on your end of the website and the website that you're sending it to receiving it, that data is going to be scrambled up and then only the website that you're sending it to will have the key at the other end to decode it. So if it's intercepted in any way while it's moving through the tubes of the internet, you don't have to worry about that information being stolen because it's going to be just sort of scrambled up in this jargon that no one can understand unless they've got that key. And the key only exists on the other end on the website that you're trying to talk to. So this is definitely something you want to look for when you're doing any kind of sensitive uh, information online. 
Um, again, especially if it's around financial information, but really any time that you're interacting back and forth, exchanging information through a website, you want to make sure that's encrypted to avoid third parties stealing that information while it's in transit. So you can look for this um, both in the URL of a website. So you can see in these screenshots, the example on the right starts with HTTPS colon slash slash www, et cetera. Um, and that is indicating to you that it's using that secure protocol. You've got the S in the URL there. Um, you may or may not actually see that. Some web browsers kind of hide that part of the URL because it's a little messy and you don't necessarily need to like always be reading those slashes and colons and things. Um, the other way that you can see it is that there's a lock icon that shows up. It's going to look a little bit different depending on your web browser. This is a screenshot from Firefox, but it's a little bit of an older screenshot, so I don't think it even looks this way in Firefox anymore. But you can see in this example on the right-hand screenshot, just before the web address starts, there's a little green lock icon. And something that looks like that is going to show up somewhere on the web navigation bar when you're looking at a secure site. It might not be green, it might be you know, gray or black, but it should be a little lock icon either at the beginning or end of the web address. And that will indicate to you that you're looking at a secure site, that your data is going to be encrypted. It's not such a big deal uh, if something is not encrypted on just kind of a flat page that's providing you information, but you're not really interacting with in any way. Um, again, these are some somewhat old examples because actually our whole website is um, using HTTPS now. But previously on Blue Hill Library's website, uh, as you can see on the left-hand screenshot, uh, we did not used to have just the home page of the site encrypted because you're not exchanging any information there. Uh, it's just giving you information. It's pretty much a static page. There's some text and pictures on it, but you're not going back and forth with it at all. So you're not in any danger of your data being snatched. Um, so we did not have that encrypted and you can see there's no HTTPS in the URL. There's no lock icon there. But on the right, this is once you've logged into your library account. And um, we do have this encrypted because this is a case in which you're exchanging personal information through the website. You're putting in your library card number and your password. We're displaying you know, information specific to you about what books you have checked out and you might renew them online. All of that stuff is going through that encrypted secure connection to make sure that it's not intercepted. So that's a great way if you are doing sensitive things on the internet, if you're trying to figure out if you can trust a website, is to look for that lock icon, meaning that the website is secure for you to transmit information back and forth with. And one last tip about navigating websites and trying to figure out what's trustworthy is always look for the about section. Uh, this relates right to that authority question that we talked about in the crap test, right? Who made this? A website should tell you who made a thing, whether that's a byline on a news article, um, and you can click on that to see a biography, you know, a little profile of the reporter, or actually an about page about the organization in general. Um, so in this case, 
you might have signed up for a workshop led by this person called Hannah Cyrus from the Blue Hill Library, and you want to make sure that that's legit, you could go to the library's website, look under the about section, and you'll see that this person is listed there. Uh, you've got that email address that you've been corresponding with, you've got a picture, name, title, everything is there. If you're still a little bit skeptical and you want to double check, you can also cross-reference those names uh, and companies by doing a web search. So you looked on the about page, you see someone and you want to figure out more about what their deal is, do a search for their name, maybe include the organization, see what else comes up. Um, you can look through the results and see, okay, yeah, like this person's name is on a whole bunch of other events. So it looks like they really have done things like this before. Um, and that's a good way to get confirmation and learn a little bit more. You can find out not just from the horse's mouth, but also from potentially some third parties, if anyone else has written about this person or this organization, by just doing a search for it um, based on what you find on their about page. Okay, so that was a bit about websites. Next up, we're gonna discuss email uh, and some different aspects of emails and evaluating them. We'll talk about common email scams and phishing, and then discuss unsubscribing and marking emails as spam when you get unwanted messages. So this is a list of some common email scams from the FTC. There's many more, but these are just some of the top ones. And the through line here is basically, if it seems too good to be true, it probably is too good to be true. So some common scams that you might get over email, and you might also get you know, by scam phone calls or text messages or in any format. Focus business opportunities, chain letters, asking you to forward them along to everyone you know, work at home schemes, health and diet scams, easy money, quote unquote free goods, investment opportunities, bulk email schemes, cable descrambler kits, which I find fascinatingly specific, uh, guaranteed loans or credit, and especially prevalent right now, messages uh, from fake government agencies. So again, these are all things that you might see and think, well, that seems too good to be true. And if it's ringing that alarm bell, uh, absolutely, it probably is too good to be true. And especially if these kinds of things are coming from unknown centers or people that you're not familiar with, you should be extremely skeptical of anything you're getting as unsolicited email that falls into any of these kinds of categories. Fake government agencies right now is a big problem. What with everything going on with you know, the CARES Act and people trying to get their stimulus checks, um, people pretending to be contact tracers from the CDC, even um, fake census scams. So we're interacting a lot more with the government than we might usually and in ways in which the government doesn't typically interact with us. And that is kind of creating a field day for scammers as well. So that takes me a little bit into the idea of phishing, also called social engineering. And this is the phenomenon where someone is trying to pretend to be someone that they're not in order to trick you. So you might get an email or again, maybe a text message or some other communication from someone claiming to be a contact tracer from the CDC saying you've been exposed to someone with coronavirus or pretending to be your boss or uh, a family member. 
It might even have a name in the email field that is your boss's name or your family member's name. Uh, because anyone can create an email address and put whatever they want in the name field. So one first step to take is double check that it's coming from the actual email address, especially if it's someone posing to be a specific person that you know that you've corresponded with before. Um, check the full email address that the message is coming from, both the part before the at sign and after the at sign, which is called the domain of the email. Uh, so the part before is probably easier to fake. Uh, you know, you can be hannah.cyrus at lots of different uh, email address domains. But the domain um, would be harder to fake. So a lot of times that's where the there will be some sort of difference between the fake email and the actual email. So double check, um, compare it to a, a legitimate email you've gotten from that person before and make sure that None of the letters are, you know, one letter off, or there's not an extra number stuck in there somewhere, or it's not, you know, .net instead of .com. Those are things to look for, especially if the content of the email seems suspicious or not like something that person would usually say. If they're asking you to buy something or click on a link or download an attachment, um, these are all potential scams. Another thing you can do is to try getting in touch with the person that they're claiming to be in another way. So if you're not sure, huh, this doesn't sound like something that my boss would ask me, find another way to get in touch with your boss. Instead of replying directly to that email, uh, give them a call or a text message, uh, communicate to them in some other way. Even if you have no other contact information, just compose a new email with their actual email address in the recipient line and send it to them. And that's a surefire way to tell if that person actually sent that message. Because if they you know, get on the phone with you and say, no, I never sent that to you, then you know it's not them. And uh, if it is them, then no harm done. You've just confirmed. You can also do a web search for the content of a suspicious message. So you could take a sentence or a paragraph copy it and paste it into Google or DuckDuckGo, whatever search engine you like to use, and see if anyone else has posted online about it. A lot of times if it's a common scam, you know, people won't reinvent the wheel. They'll use the same message over and over and just personalize it in small ways to different people. So uh, if you search for the message for, again, a few sentences or a paragraph, you might see other folks posting online about having had this experience, which should definitely indicate to you that it's not a legitimate message. And another thing you can do is uh, check the actual URLs of any links that they're sending before you click on them. So you can do this. Uh, you may get an email that looks something like this. It's got some text that is hyperlinked uh, and you, you know, it doesn't necessarily tell you from the email itself where that link's gonna go. You don't know where it's going to take you. But uh, on your web browser, if you move your mouse over that linked text, so just hover over it, put your mouse on top of it without clicking, in the bottom left corner, your web browser will give you a preview of where that link is going to take you. So even if the link itself isn't spelled out in the text of the message, you can generate a preview of it to see where you're gonna go if you click on it by just 
hovering your mouse over it and looking in that bottom left corner. And this is a good tactic to do uh, before you click on anything so you know what you're in store for. Um, even if it looks like the full text of the link is spelled out in the email, it's a good idea to just hover over it for a second and take a quick look at that bottom left corner before you click on it. Because you can take text that looks like a link, uh, you know, google.com, that if you click on it, it should take you to google.com, but the sender could have changed where it's actually going to send you. Uh, so that it just looks like it's going to take you to Google, and you can't know unless you look at this little preview in the bottom left where it's actually going to go. So hover over the text and check that preview before clicking on anything, especially from unknown senders, especially if anything else about it is feeling weird or setting off alarms. Um, you know, I would not necessarily open any suspicious messages. If it looks like a scam just from the subject line, if it's not from a known sender, then just go ahead and delete it or mark it as spam without opening it at all. But uh, if you do open it, it's not usually the opening of the message that's going to do any harm to you. It would be more the clicking on a link or downloading or opening an attachment. So especially be careful if you have opened a message, if it's encouraging you to click on a link or download an attachment, be really, really thoughtful before doing that because those are the things that can actually harm your computer. On the subject of unwanted messages, um, there's a couple different ways that you can get rid of messages that you don't want to be sent to you. One is unsubscribing. And this is a good tactic if you're getting messages from a legitimate source, they're not nefarious, they're not malicious, they're just you know sending you their newsletter, sending you advertisements or promotions and you don't want to get them anymore. Those generally will have a link somewhere at the bottom of each message where you can unsubscribe. And again, if it's a legitimate source, if it's a real company and you know how you got on their mailing list, you know, because you signed up for their service once or you, you know, purchased something from them and they've got your email, then you can feel secure clicking on the unsubscribe link. And that's a conversation between you and the sender of the email. You're notifying them, hey, I don't want to get these anymore. Stop sending them to me. And that will generally work pretty well. Um, but again, that's for organizations that are legitimate, that are just trying to you know, advertise to you or keep you informed of their services, and you happen not to want those emails. The other thing you can do is report messages as spam, sometimes also called junk mail. And this is a screenshot from Gmail just as an example, but whatever email service you use should have some kind of spam function. And this is a little bit different from unsubscribing um, because you're not in conversation with the sender of the message, which is good, right? If it's a scam or a junk message that uh, someone is sending out to tons of people, you don't want to respond to them. You don't want to let them know that you exist or that you got their message because then they'll kind of know that they've got a live one. Uh, instead, you're going to have a conversation with your email provider to say, hey, this is not a good message. Don't let messages like this come to my inbox anymore. And generally, it's going to look something like this exclamation point icon. Again, it will be different depending on what email service you use. But there should be a way to mark something as spam or junk 
which will not only take that particular message out of your inbox and put it in a spam folder, but it will also teach your email provider that that kind of message is bad and shouldn't be let through. Um, so that will help you in the future and also potentially help other users of that email service as it gets smarter and learns about certain scams, it'll stop them coming through to everybody. So that's what you should do in the event that you're getting messages uh, into your inbox that are scams, that are phishing attempts, fraud, uh, anything like that that's really nefarious. Don't communicate back to the person who sent them. Instead, mark them as spam so that your email service knows not to let them through. And lastly, we're going to dig a little bit into social media. Obviously, social media is a huge piece of the information landscape now, for better or for worse. In some ways, it's great because people can share information really quickly. Folks who would not traditionally have access to publishing um, can access lots of people very quickly this way. Um, and in other ways, it can be tough because, as we've said, sometimes disseminating information more quickly than it can be vetted causes problems. And uh, since it's so easy to create accounts, anybody can say anything they want very quickly. So we'll cover a little bit of uh, tips around social media. We'll talk about verified sources, a little bit on third-party apps, and then discuss clickbait. So verified sources, um, verification is something that lots of social media platforms have started doing in an effort to cut down on people impersonating others. Because it's so easy to create an account and name it anything you want, uh, this is something that the social media companies themselves have done in order to uh, help their users differentiate between legitimate accounts and impersonators. So these are examples from Facebook. You'll see next to certain uh, pages or personal profiles, a blue check mark. And that indicates that uh, the social media company, in this case, Facebook, has verified that this brand or person is who they say they are. So it's not necessarily an endorsement of what that person is saying. And um, it's certainly possible for people who are verified to spread misinformation or say things that are untrue. But it's just telling you that, in this case, Facebook has done the legwork to confirm that this is the real Google or the real Brian Clark. Um, so you know, you'll see these with companies and people who are well known enough that um, the social media company feels that it's worth verifying them. Uh, and, you know, you or I may not have a check mark because no one cares if we are who we say we are, but for larger organizations or people uh, who are more well known, you do want to just look for that check mark, if, especially if you see someone saying something and you're like, I can't believe that the Queen of England said that. Well, double check that it's really the Queen of England saying it before you spread it along. Third-party apps are another thing to keep in mind with social media. Uh, again, this is an example from Facebook, but there may have been times when you've allowed third-party applications access to your Facebook account. Um, this could be through logging in with Facebook on other services. Sometimes that feels faster and easier than creating a new account there. 
or, um, you know, on when you're on Facebook and there's a, an application that's sort of somewhat integrated into it. And maybe you want to take what looks like a fun quiz. And in order to do that, it needs access to your account and you just go for it because you're wanting to do it in the moment. But um, I would be judicious about letting those things happen because third party applications can, um, you know, do more than just what looks like the fun quiz, right? Maybe they allow you to take a which Harry Potter character are you quiz, but they also are gaining access to all of the information on your profile, potentially uh, information about the people that you're friends with on the platform. And, um, you know, they could be doing all kinds of things with that information, selling it to advertisers, uh, using it for other purposes. So be wary of both who you're allowing access to that information and generally about what information you're posting on social media. I think we're really encouraged to share a lot about our personal lives, and that can be really nice in some ways, but you might also be unwittingly sharing some information that um, is potentially more sensitive than you realize. For example, a lot of the security questions around things like you know, your online bank account or other services, if they have those security questions to answer if you've forgotten your password, will be things that are personal details that you might easily have posted about online without making that connection. You know, what's your mother's maiden name? Or what was the make and model of your first car? Or your second grade teacher's name? Uh, those are, you know, all things that you might have casually mentioned at some point without realizing it. And um, you should just think about that and be careful about what you're posting online, especially when you've got these third party applications that you've given permission to access all the things on your account. And last but not least, I wanted to just discuss the concept of clickbait a little bit. Um, so this is a term that refers to headlines that are purposefully designed just to encourage you to click on them. Uh, and these are a couple examples that I've shared here. The first one is political. So it's a federal court just gave terrible news to owners of assault rifles. And then the little subheader is, this is excellent news for Americans who want to live in peace. Well, that doesn't actually give you any information about what's in this article, right? It's just sort of tantalizing you to so you find out, oh, what is the news? What did the court say? Um, but, you know, it's kind of trying to manipulate you into clicking on it. Uh, and this is definitely something that both sides of the political aisle, aisle do. I included an example here from Occupy Democrats, but certainly all stripes of political news sources uh, will try to get you to click on headlines using tactics like this. And then the example on the right is just a totally apolitical one. Why you should always put a coin in the freezer before you leave home. And again, the caption where they could give you more information just says, brilliant. This is like really effective. It makes you want to click on it. It makes you think, oh, why should I? Should I be doing that? Maybe I need to click on this to find out why I should be doing that. This could change my life. Because you don't have any actual information from the headline. Um, and, you know, there's a reason that clicking is so important in the Internet era. Websites make their money by selling advertisements and, you know, they can't sell advertisements if no one visits their website to look at the ads. So they're motivated to get you to click no matter what so that the ads on their page will load and they can pay their bills. 
And again, it doesn't necessarily mean that the information on the other end of a clickbaity headline is bad, but it's important to notice when you're being manipulated. And it is sort of a tactic used by a little bit less scrupulous sources generally. Um, obviously, sensational headlines have been in, in play in the media environment uh, since written language was invented. But uh, on the internet, they've sort of taken on a new life. So keep it in mind um, when you get the urge to click on something just to find out what it is. Is this clickbait? Is this just trying to get me to engage with it and not providing me any actual substantive information? It might be a bit of a red flag for you. And this is a URL for a uh, video that I really like as sort of a counterpoint to everything that I have been saying. So uh, I can't actually share it through this format, but I will link to it in the description of this video. And um, if you search uh, Hank Green, trusting experts on YouTube, you should find it as well. And you know, basically everything I've said in this presentation boils down to the idea that you should trust no one, verify everything yourself, be double checking everything, constantly be questioning. And I think that's very good and useful information and is true to an extent, but it can also be taken to an extreme. And I do believe that there's still a place for trusting experts in our culture. Uh, and this video, speaks a little bit about that idea. So I encourage you to watch it and keep in mind that while it is important to put in the work to confirm things, especially before you share them and continue to spread that information, it's also only possible up to a point. We can't all be experts in everything and it's okay to trust in a scientific process and a process of vetting. Um, you know, I think people are really attracted to conspiracy theories right now because they provide comfort and we don't like ambiguity and they provide answers when there are no answers. But uh, it's important to look for trustworthy sources of information, um, evaluate them, think about them, question them, but don't question them to the extent that it becomes easier to believe that everyone is lying to you than it is to actually Put your faith in some expertise. So I encourage you to follow up with that video as a bit of a counterpoint to everything that I've been discussing so far. There's some other fun resources out there. Um, if you search for Melissa Zimdars, she's got a great list that she compiled um, that is in no way comprehensive but shockingly large of false misleading clickbaity and satirical quote-unquote news sources. And she started compiling this sort of at the height of the, when fake news became a term that was coined. And I think uh, more so than any kind of comprehensive encyclopedia of fake news sources, it's a testament to the fact that it's much easier to think about you know, those concepts we discussed in the crap test and apply them to each piece of information you are engaging with than it is to think that you can catalog every good or bad source. There are new fake news sources being created all the time, and there's no way that any one list could keep up with them all. So it's fun to look at her list and browse it and see just the scope, the, the sheer scope of bad news sources out there. 
but I think it's mostly a testament to the fact that you can't just keep track of them all on a list. You have to really be able to use the skills to evaluate an individual article or other piece of information on your own. And um, as I mentioned in the email section, the FTC has a great section on their website about how to avoid email phishing with some more tips about that. If you've got additional questions about these concepts or anything you want to talk about, you can contact me at the library. All my information is on our website, which is bhpl.net. Thanks for listening. That was Blue Hill Library Assistant Director Hannah Cyrus with a presentation on digital media literacy recorded at the library on May 20th. Our thanks to the library for making the audio and the video of the presentation available. The video is posted on the WERU Facebook page. You can learn more about their upcoming events at www.bhpl.net. You're listening to Maine Currents on WERU-FM. I'm Amy Brown. Now for some news. Hundreds of people rallied in Bangor last night, joining marches across the country and across the state, expressing outrage at the murder of George Floyd at the hands of police. The Maine CDC is reminding protesters to wear face coverings and keep six feet apart from others, as cases of COVID being spread by asymptomatic or pre-symptomatic people appears to be on the rise. The ACLU, American Civil Liberties Union, has released a new Know Your Rights video for protesters, which is available on their Facebook page. Here are some of their key points. Quote, the right to protest is a fundamental human right guaranteed by the U.S. Constitution and the First Amendment. If you get stopped, ask if you are free to go. If the police say yes, calmly walk away. You have the right to record. The right to protest includes the right to record, including recording police doing their jobs. The police can order people to stop interfering with legitimate police operations, but video recording from a safe distance is not interfering. If you get stopped, police cannot take away or confiscate any videos or photos without a warrant. If you are videotaping, keep in mind that in some states, the audio is treated differently than the images, but images and video images are always fully protected by the First Amendment. The police's main job in a protest is to protect you and your right to protest and to de-escalate any threat of violence. If you get arrested, don't say anything. Ask for a lawyer immediately. Do not sign anything and do not agree to anything without an attorney present. If you get arrested, demand your right to a local phone call. If you call your lawyer for legal advice, law enforcement is not allowed to listen. Police cannot delete data from your device under any circumstances. Close quote. That's advice from the American Civil Liberties Union. You can find them on Facebook or at aclu.org. President Trump is planning to come to Maine on Friday to visit a company in Guilford that manufactures swabs that are used in coronavirus tests. Despite discouragement from Governor Mills, who cited potential security issues, Trump says he expects to have a, quote, tremendous crowd, close quote, of people showing up and that, quote, I think most of them are very favorable. They like their president, close quote. At a press conference late yesterday, Governor Mills said, quote, Mr. President, I speak now as someone who's responsible for the health and safety of 1.3 million people, including those who support and believe in you. I ask when you arrive here, you rise above the language I heard this morning. I ask that you check the rhetoric at the door. She's referring, the, end quote, she's referring there to a phone call earlier in the day 
between Trump and state governors in which he criticized governors for not coming down harder on protesters. Later in the day, yesterday, Trump delivered a statement in the Rose Garden calling himself a, quote, ally of all peaceful protesters, close quote, and then saying he was going to mobilize the military to deal with riots. As he spoke, federal police suddenly started pushing back a crowd of peaceful protesters using rubber bullets, tear gas, and flashbangs, clearing a path so Trump could walk across the street for a photo op with a church in which he posed with a Bible. As of now, Trump's plans to visit the Puritan Medical Products plant in Guilford, Maine, on Friday are still on. A quick update on the coronavirus numbers here in Maine today. 28 new cases are being reported today, and five Mainers have died of COVID-19 since yesterday. 1,646 have recovered. That's an increase of 60 since yesterday. That's all we have time for today. You've been listening to Maine Currents, independent local news, views, and culture. I'm Amy Brown. Maine Currents airs on the first and third Tuesday of every month with our Elections 2020 edition on the third Tuesdays. Our programs are archived at WERU.org, and you can also find us on the WERU app. Send story ideas and feedback to news at WERU.org. Be sure to also tune in on Monday, Wednesday, and Friday afternoons at 3.50 p.m. for our live Maine coronavirus updates. Keep it tuned here for Radio EcoShock, coming up next here on Community Radio, WERU-FM 89.9 Blue Hill, and streaming online at WERU.org.